good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Well, we have a really extraordinary show for everyone this morning. Here from the Land of Enchantment, here in uh, gorgeous northern New Mexico. Um, A few days ago, literally, probably, maybe a week or two, we discovered something courtesy of some uh, amateur astronomers, one particular in o- in Ohio, um, who is a, he bills himself the backyard astronomer, and he posted on Reddit a, um, a piece of information that showed that there was this remarkable, incredibly symmetrical circle of objects on the ground. The presumption, of course, was stones, that were sitting at the uh, site of the Surveyor 3 landing on the moon, unmanned landing, back in 1967, and the unmanned uh, Apollo 12 mission to the moon in 1969. And uh, he didn't do anything more. He just kind of put up the links. He uh, had a a link to the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter, uh, website from the Indians, the Indian Space Agency, and uh, he left it at that. So I noticed that instantly because, of course, of uh, my measurements of uh, Stonehenge with Robin and our long discussions with uh, Maria Wheatley. And I realized that maybe, just maybe, this amateur astronomer had discovered something really extraordinary which was the uh, presence of some kind of ancient circle of stones or something else in a place where, of course, it has no business being, and that was on the moon. So I kind of went into the measurements and did some work and realized that uh, this thing is pretty extraordinary at so many different levels. So we did one show that was a couple, three weeks ago, and now we're going to do part two, because in the interim, we have found new information and including as part of uh, uh, my efforts at a first kind of crude alignment, there are structures, and I use that term very carefully because I they don't look like when you get the close-up images from the Apollo 12 surface Hasselblads. They don't look, a lot of them, like rocks. They look like fashioned sculptures of some kind, or in a couple of instances, they look like uh, pieces of machinery that have been laid down on the lunar surface and look like some kind of geometric pointer to something. Anyway, we're going to talk tonight about part two the data that we have learned in the several days, maybe a week or two since we did the first show. But we have so much else to cover tonight that I obviously want to get into that first, and then we will move into the uh, bulk of tonight's uh, show, our program. We have a very interesting panel assembled to discuss this data. Some have done some original research, and we will present that. And um, anyway, we'll just see how the evening progresses. But tonight is a very special time because we've got as one of the central objects of this monument or marker or whatever artificial thing it was, we've got something that looks for all the world like a genuine building on the moon. And as I said in, uh, uh, in the blog talk promo, If you find something that's unmistakably architectural, it only takes one to completely shatter the illusion that we are the only consciousness on Earth and that we have ever been the only consciousness on Earth. Because one of the milder forms of hypothesis is that if we're not looking at something left by genuine ETs, that is genuine extraterrestrials, We're looking at something from a previous high-tech terrestrial civilization right here on Earth, which went to the moon, found all kinds of things, 
decided to build this monument and leave it for future generations in terms of an extraordinary period of time. Anyway, that's all ahead of us. Let me kind of get to some news tonight. The, obviously, the the shattering catastrophe going on in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas is still going on. And the death toll on both sides is just, it, it's just unbelievable. And obviously, we're not going to spend time tonight talking about it, except in this reference, as I have said for many years, if not decades, the only solution to the human race tearing itself apart of killing other members of the human family is to find something exterior, some outside intelligence, some outside influence, some outside reality, which will put humans on Earth finally back into their proper context. And I will underscore that tonight as we present this evidence and it is building inevitably toward official understanding and sanction and admission that we are not alone, which, of course, is going to be the subject of a lot of my discussion tomorrow night with Steve Bassett, who has just launched a new initiative in Hollywood, uh, which we're going to talk about extensively for three hours tomorrow night. These two programs are kind of bookends because although an enormous part of the world that's paying attention to extraterrestrial uh, goings-on, think in terms of beings, UFOs, spaceships, maybe even dimensional visitors, whatever. Our work for all these years has been focused very carefully on artifacts, ancient ruin, perchance ancient libraries. Because if I've often said, UFOs are extraordinarily controversial, extraordinarily you know, prone to fake news at every level you can imagine. But ruins and artifacts and libraries elsewhere in the solar system, they stand still. All you have to do is find them. And once you've found them, all you have to do, not trivial, is to get the uh, scientific community to admit that they've been found. So item number one, for those of you who are new to the show, uh, you're on an internet connection, I presume, because our uh, broadcast from terrestrial radio takes place on a delayed basis through KCAA in Southern California. So if you're on the internet and you're on your smartphone or on a computer, you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our website, Click on tonight's banner, which says very grandly, but very accurately, what's the purpose of the ancient building Enterprise just discovered on? And there is an enlarged image of it. I mean, look at that geometry. If you found that anywhere on Earth, there would be zero debate or discussion or controversy over the fact that it's a building. In fact, it's a complex building. It's got components that are very interesting in and of themselves, which we will discuss uh, later on in the program. But since it's not on Earth, since it's on the moon and the canonical position of NASA and every other national space agency is, we're all alone. The only folks that are here are us, and we have no other companions or company anywhere in the galaxy or beyond, the statement that it's an ancient lunar building, it's not very big, it's maybe seven feet long, about five feet high, it's substantial, it would make a really useful, you know, outdoor shed for somebody, uh, either on a farm or in suburbia. But the fact that it's not on Earth and it's on the moon, of course, makes everybody go, Oh, it can't be what it looks like, can it? Tonight, we're going to provide corroborating data that, in fact, it is. In fact, we even may be able to get into some discussion of, as I said in the title, what its purpose might have been. 
So that is for uh, our, our, our future discussion. So if you go to that banner and click on it, that will take you to the guest page. And all you have to do, my guest page is not coming up properly. I think there's a bit out of uh, out of out of order. I cannot seem to get the uh, guest page to come up. So there we are. There we are. Okay. Um, the first item, of course, is about the war in uh, in uh, Israel and Gaza, which, by any measure, is shatteringly catastrophic. Something like ten thousand plus people, about a third of them children have now died. And needlessly, totally needlessly. Um, The reason I have an item in the first item for news tonight about Obama is because tonight also happens to be the fifth anniversary since the American people elected the first black president in history. And all of us that night looked forward to ascending heights of equality, of truth, of democracy, of the adjudication of of differences by means of negotiation and compromise, all of which we're not seeing at all in the Middle East tonight. And so Obama wrote an op-ed on the 15th anniversary of his election as uh, president, and you can see it there in item number one. Item number two, before we move on to the substance of tonight's discussion. Uh, it's daylight savings time, and it uh, it enters our consciousness here at 2 a.m. in the land of enchantment in the mountain time. Uh, back east, it's uh, already the mountain. It's already a daylight savings time. We Remember, you spring forward, you fall back. So after the show, if you're listening here in mountain time zones or to the west of us in Pacific, you will, at 2 a.m., you will turn your clock one hour backward. If you're back east, you already should have done so. Uh, Item number three. While we are looking intensively now at two stunning breakthroughs regarding our research vis-a-vis the moon, one being this lunar Stonehenge, which just gets more and more and more interesting, and the other being the discovery uh, several weeks ago that the astronauts inadvertently, when they brought 842 pounds of rock samples back from the Apollo missions to the moon, they inadvertently, at least I'm certain the crew had no idea, they inadvertently brought something like uh, several hundred pounds in those rocks of beautiful, extraordinary, exquisitely geometric, machine-looking, high-tech artifacts, which, because of random impacts on the moon, creating the bulk of the moon rocks that the Apollo crews brought home, namely what are called breccias, which are basically smashed-together fragments of other rock on the surface and regolith and materials that are you know, the result of eons of micrometeorite bombardment. In those Brescia lunar samples, rocks weighing several pounds and more in individual cases, because of the thin sections, the slicing and dicing of the rocks in the lunar receiving laboratory and in accredited laboratories all around the world to which uh, NASA has loaned samples, for independent analysis, according to our research and our discovery, there are countless fragments of micro machines, circuits, bits and pieces of broken mechanical engineering, circuitry, chips, wires, everything smushed together in these rocks. And we have issued a challenge called the Abby Loeb Challenge, which is basically challenging Dr. Abby Loeb, astronomer at Harvard who has pioneered in the mainstream and in looking into the potential for ET artifacts uh, here on Earth or in the solar system. Remember, he was the second uh, scientist to uh, enunciate the idea that Oumuamua was an interstellar visitor, who was the first 
programs records uh, are ample evidence that we were the first to postulate that such an extraordinary outre idea was in fact real. Abby was second. And we've been trying to get Abby Loeb on the show to discuss this and many other things for, well, many years now, at least a couple, three years. And he has turned us down repeatedly. Well, this week, we had a breakthrough. I was able to reach a major network science editor who I have known for many, many years. I am laying out to him as we speak um, the Abby Loeb Challenge. He knows Dr. Loeb. He knows me. He is going to attempt to put the two of us together so we can move forward. And maybe by next weekend, by next uh, Saturday or Sunday show, we will have some substantive new news to report on the Abby Loeb Challenge. The problem with the moon is, of course, it's right next door. We think, we, meaning the general culture, the general population, because of Apollo and all the unmanned spacecraft sent by NASA and other state-sponsored scientific missions, we think we know the moon. I guarantee you, we do not know the moon. And tonight's subject is going to be front and center with evidence extending and exploring exactly how much we do not know about our lunar neighbor right next door. However, while we are preoccupied with the moon, with the 842 pounds of potential, you know, ancient artifacts from ET super high technology uh, uh, occupation of the lunar surface, and we're looking at the realities and implications of this really extraordinary lunar Stonehenge, NASA is en route through a mission called Lucy named after the hominid fossil found in Africa many decades ago by Don Johnson, who's an anthropologist, um, because when they found the fossil, which they are postulating as part of the human lineage in the fossil record, um, on the camp radio, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was playing. So Johnson decided to call his fossil hominid Lucy. And by metonymy, we can follow the logic here, NASA has decided to name this ongoing mission, this unmanned billion-dollar mission, to the uh, Trojan asteroids. And we'll explain what that means in a moment. Uh, Lucy as well. And the reasoning is very simple. Um, Lucy on Earth, the hominid, the fossil, represents inquiries into ancient human history origins. And the Lucy space mission visiting a sequence of asteroids from pretty much in the main belt all the way to the orbit of Jupiter to visit both the asteroids before and after in Jupiter's orbit, the so-called 60-degree Trojan orbits, over the next decade or more, it will visit a variety of anomalously interesting objects that have never been visited before, certainly in close-up flybys or in close orbit. And that is the ultimate mission of the Lucy uh, unmanned spacecraft pursuing its journey toward Jupiter's orbit tonight. Well, en route on the way, uh, Lucy, the spacecraft, has been programmed to fly relatively close by two main belt asteroids, chunks of rock, in the model, orbiting the sun like separate little planetoids, which is another alternate name for asteroids. The first such encounter took place a couple days ago, on November 1st. And it was named Dinkinish. And if you think that's a made-up name, no, it's actually a Middle Eastern name, which means marvelous. I, I'm, I forget which language it means marvelous in. Someone, I'm sure, will uh, apprise me of that through Skype. But in the meantime, they flew, they being NASA, this spacecraft 270 miles uh, close to Dinkinesh, which is only about half a mile across. 
less than a mile, about one kilometer. And they returned one image. So if you click on item number three, this will give you an overall perspective of the Lucy mission, the Lucy flyby a couple of days ago of the, quote, asteroid Dinkinish. And then in item number four, here is one of our image enhancements of the data that NASA has provided, because, of course, it turns out, if you look closely, that Dinkinish, A, a satellite, you can see that in an animation that NASA published in item number three, and it also appears to have uh, a very special kind of satellite, i.e., it looks to be a 500-foot-wide spaceship. How do, can we tell? Look at the enhanced close-up that I was rendered here at the Enterprise mission in item number four. Both the primary, the half-mile-wide object, which is the big one, and the small one, the 500-foot-wide object, which is uh, the, the satellite or the moon orbiting Dinkinish, uh, they both look to be very ancient, very eroded, very, very eroded, and thus very old spaceships. How can we tell? Because we go back to Carl Sagan's dictum, which is that intelligent life, be it on Earth or anywhere, by implication, first manifests itself through the geometric regularity of its designs. Dinkinish, from its overall shape, look at the symmetries, to the details on its surface, look at all that rectilinear geometry, particularly at the top, is, cannot be a natural object. It's an ancient, eroded spacecraft, which is now being orbited by a much smaller counterpart that in fact in the still, in the freeze frame still that NASA released in number four, appears optically to be joined, literally docked, the smaller object geometric as hell to the larger object geometric as hell. And in fact, the overall shape, once you account for major fragmentation and erosion, particularly of the top, appears to be of the same octahedral bisymmetric geometry of other asteroids that NASA and other space agencies have visited, like Ryugu, visited by the Japanese, and Bennu, which was visited by the NASA unmanned spacecraft mission OSIRIS-REx, which returned samples from the surface of Ryugu earlier uh, last month, and would you believe that for over a month, NASA has been claiming it cannot get into the sample collection box returned from Ryugu containing priceless fragments of this asteroid because, wait for it, they can't open two fasteners on the collection box. They don't have the right screwdriver. Now, if you believe that, I've got a bridge that I'll sell you really, really, really cheap. This appears to me to be a very interesting kind of dumb excuse to delay the fact that when they open the box from Bennu, what they will find is what we can see in the video of the collection of the samples at, at uh, uh, Bennu itself, which namely is amidst all the random rocks and debris and soil and carbonaceous compounds, there are more little, small, mechanical-looking artifacts. In other words, the surface of Bennu under the um, you know moon rock model that inadvertently these collisions create, you know, capsules for, in, for in, entombing and imprisoning little bits of high technology that is rampant out there in the solar system. It is not at all implausible based on the close-up images that we have 
of the material that was not in the collection box inside the larger container, which we'll talk about in more depth next week, that in fact they are looking for every excuse not to open up, at least in public, the container because of the extraordinary, stunning technological surprises that they now fear will be discovered inside. And I say that all with a very large caveat around it, because my my real feeling is, of course, they opened the box. Of course, they looked in. Of course, they found what I've just said. And they can't figure out a plausible cover story to not show the public, the taxpayer, the world, what they brought back. So they're seeking to delay, 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 delay. It appears to be a very common uh, action by people who do not want to be held accountable, at least not just yet. So on that note, um, I think we should go to our panel. We've got about five minutes till the bottom of the hour. Uh, If you go to the other side of midnight and click on tonight's banner, uh, that will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you will see biographies for Holger Eisenberg, Andrew Curry, Ron Gerbron, Rogero Kahlo, Maria Wheatley, Georgia Lambert, and Laura London. And all of these people have very interesting things to add to our exploration tonight of have we in fact discovered a bona fide lunar Stonehenge? And if we have, what in fact uh, is it trying to tell us? So let's see. Who do I want to go to first? Let me see. I'll tell you what, Maria, since you're the uh, resident expert in um, Stonehenge, uh, earthly counterparts uh, all over the globe, why don't we begin with you? What in the time you've had now, about a couple of weeks, with, I believe, a colleague, what have you discovered? And you only have time for a brief tease because we're at the bottom of the hour. Break coming up. Maria? Oh, dear. I think the time difference between us and Britain may have got Maria. So let me go to Holger. Holger, you've been doing ample work on this background in terms of circles, alignments, and all that. Give us a tease of what you're going to talk about when we come back from the break. Oh, first, what I found is uh, the question was... uh, on the last show is, or did the circle which we saw near Apollo 12 really existed before Apollo 12 or right. was it built by the astronauts maybe? Right. And what I found is that uh, it was already vis- clearly visible in the Surveyor 3 images from 1967. I digged out from the NASA archives photos from that, so it really is something really old before any human landing happened there. That was an interesting finding. Well, I found it independently on the uh, lunar orbiter imagery, which was taken even before Surveyor 3 landed. So we now know categorically that, in fact, it was there all along. I'll tell you what, let's hold it there. Um, We're at the bottom of the hour. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we will be right back after a word from our sponsor, which, of course, is The Other Side of Midnight. Remember, the show does not stay on the air unless you subscribe and get access to literally thousands of hours of programming, at least a 1,000, maybe 1,500 of hours since 19, no, 2015. Actually, technically, 2014 was our first special on the flyby of NASA of Pluto. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to 
Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. I'm sorry about that. Things are being very bizarre tonight, so do not know why. Okay, Holger, um, yes, before the break, you said you had discovered, and it's really important, it's not trivial, because one of my first thoughts was that the astronauts, in the kind of uh, vein of uh, Edgar Mitchell, who was the uh, lunar module pilot on Apollo 14, uh, in their copious spare time, they didn't really have any, but we, we don't know what all the timeline was. They decided to build a cairn, which is a standard explorer anywhere on Earth, you know, to kind of mark that they have been some historic place or some place no one else has ever been, that they put up a loose pile of stones. Sometimes they look like a pyramid. Sometimes they will literally make a circle on the ground. So my first thought was, well, the Apollo astronauts, in their copious spare time, took a few moon rocks and arranged them in a circle to kind of leave an immortal fingerprint that humans, i.e. Conrad and Bean, had been there. But you and I independently have now ascertained that this set, this structure, this extraordinary, very, very aligned and methodical and artificial construct existed long before even NASA unmanned spacecraft had gone to the moon. So that's not a trivial confirmation. It's important, especially, I was also thinking before, it it was built by the Apollo 12, Alan Bean and Pete Conrad, because I was hoping that, <laughs> because I was hoping, because it was looking so strange. Wait, 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 wait. Why, uh, would you, why would you hope that and not hope that it was built by ETs, which would solve forever the problem, are we alone? The two by hypotheses. Nice. The two. Uh, hang on, I'm, hang on. The two hypotheses are equal. You just find the data to prove which one is correct. Because I, I take I, it you're I, not quibbling with the idea that this thing is so perfect it really can't be natural. Definitely, if you see something similar on Earth, you will immediately think it's it's a man-made, or at least it is not a naturally randomly created circle of stones like you see any Bronze Age stone circle on Earth. It's not a random effect which can create that. And, and I'm, I'm, I am a fan of ancient aliens uh, since decades, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was more inclined to believe that uh, Alan Bean and Pete Conrad built it, but <laughs> I found out now it was existing before. Well, that's not trivial. That's, that's, that's the ball game. That's everything, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, so uh, you, uh, hang on, I, 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 I want to savor this moment. Holger Eisenberg believes that the lunar Stonehenge is, in fact, an artificial construct built by humans not from Earth or aliens not from Earth. Uh, not exactly. I, I'm, I'm just saying uh, if I would see something like that on Earth, I would think it's not randomly naturally produced. If I see something like that on the moon, uh, then I'm investigating. <laughs> Let's say it this way. Oh, wait, isn't that a double standard? Because if you find this thing on Earth, why would you think it's artificial? Because of its geometry and the fact that we've got quite a few examples, right? If you find the same yes. geometry, even if it's on another planet, why does your criteria change for artificial or natural? How do you produce 
an alignment circle of 12 components with the central one being the tallest with alignments toward the horizon for specific star settings, risings and settings, and one particular alignment which shows a major geometric office, uh, object, you know, just a few tens of feet away and not come to the same conclusion it's artificial, which means if humans didn't do it, somebody else, by definition, some other intelligent beings had to. And I, I, I would not even look into the, the alignment. I'm, I'm just seeing it as a circle with a center object. In each part of the circle objects have the same size, almost the same distance to each other, uh, 12 in number. And that alone is, is strange enough to, to uh, motivate for further investigation. And I guess that uh, within the 60s, uh, since 1967, we have detailed images of that, that someone else already also looked into that, but we haven't heard anything yet. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? We've got other images, from, you mean from, from Surveyor? Yeah, the Surveyor images, yeah. They well, are you, uh, do, 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 do we have any data that the Surveyor team at JPL even notice this because the surveyor imagery that I've looked at is so bad, is so light, you know, uh, leaked because of taking pictures toward the sun, because of the poor uh, bandwidth and signal to noise ratio of transmitting television back from the moon back in the 60s. That when I, if, if I did not know this thing was there, I would, from the surveyor data, never have a clue. Yeah, that uh, quality is the other topic, and indeed, it was really difficult for for me to identify it on the surveyor's three images. I knew it, the position I knew from the Apollo, from the Indian uh, Chandrayaan two images. I knew the exact position uh, relative to the surveyor lander, but it took me uh, almost two weeks to identify it on the surveyor's three images because of the low quality of the existing images. Well, one of the and mysteries my, uh, one of the mysteries yeah. I have is we know for the last fifty years there has been this intense global controversy. I think deliberately started. I think deliberately started by NASA because I was at JPL when the guy is walking around. Remember the guy in the in the uh, big raincoat who's handing out pamphlets saying that we never land on the moon even during Apollo eleven. He's at JPL, he's at NASA, handing out to all the press these leaflets, and is basically claiming that Apollo 11 is being done faked on a soundstage somewhere in Nevada. So NASA has been hosting in their own press room people who've been basically spreading fake news about Apollo from the beginning. So over the decades since Apollo, there's built up this very significant part of the population who have been lured, who've been seduced by the fake news that Apollo never never existed, to thinking that NASA faked it somewhere in a studio somewhere on Earth. So when NASA sent a spacecraft in 2009 called Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter with an extraordinarily powerful telescope, basically looking down at the moon, taking very high resolution pictures with images showing objects the size of inches. Everyone looked forward to LRO, to the imagery from Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, confirming by looking down from orbit at each of the Apollo landing sites. And Apollo 12 was on the list. I have looked at the archived images, even in the early Apollo, uh, Apollo site imagery, by LRO, and even its initial orbit, they later lowered the orbit down to about 13 miles, but even in the 60-mile orbit, this remarkable circle of objects or stones laid out like a miniature Stonehenge, about 30 feet across, is clearly visible on the overhead imagery from NASA's own spacecraft. But nobody made a mention. No NASA scientist said, hey, guys, look at that. Nobody wrote papers. Nobody did any research. 
Nobody wrote about it on Twitter. It became an absolute non-event until the Indian mission with the orbiting of Chandrayaan-2 back in, I think, 2019, took its much better than LRO imagery of the Apollo sites, seeking to obviously confirm the fake story that we didn't land on the moon with real data that show that we did. And as part of the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter, unmanned orbiter looking down, taking really exquisite high-resolution images, this circle of objects, this little Stonehenge or circle of, of uh, alignment stones, like they appear to be on Earth, blatantly stands out. In fact, you can see the scale of the stone circle in the orbital images by just comparing it to the shadow of the known width and height of the lunar module descent, in, uh, you know, descent stage lying like about 200 feet to the north uh, west, uh, west-northwest on the moon. And so there's no doubt that NASA has seen this and they have been stunningly silent about what could be the most important discovery of the Apollo missions ever. Holger? That, that, that surprised me even more that I, I myself did not notice it when the, the discussion started about the lunar reconnaissance uh, images in uh, 2009. I looked at them, but never noticed it. And then even not didn't notice it at the Chandrayaan images and they were released in 21, 2021. And only noticed it a few weeks ago. Then, when that was reposted on Twitter, and uh, then read it, that uh, was the first time I took. I saw it, and when when taking a closer look at those images, it was, was even more surprise for me. And about the, the image quality, uh, should yeah, we quickly go back why, to where I Why don't we go to your images in radio with pictures and go through your exhibits? Because you you basically lay out why it's very hard to have ever noticed this on the surveyor data. Yeah, first uh, for for the listeners, uh, the, the circle is visit, uh, visible in your items number six and item number eleven and uh, items in between chat items and. Uh, in my item number two, the second image, that is an old image from Surveyor 3, 1967. And interestingly, you see the low quality there, and you only notice the circle which I marked there in the image if you exactly knew the position from other uh, probes and images. So it was difficult to identify, but finally I found it. But uh, the interesting part about this image from Surveyor is that it was the fourth image after landing it took. And it took it uh, uh, for no, multiple hours after landing, that fourth image. The first three images were taken about one hour after landing directly. And then they had a break in image recording at least. And that fourth image was then recorded at uh, 1 a.m. in the morning, and the landing was 4 p.m. in the afternoon before. So there was a multiple-hour break in image recording until they recorded the next image, and that next image was the one with the circle, and it was the first image showing the horizon. So, so this, really is, this, is your, this is your item number two? Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, so it's not only no special way. because that, you see the ring here. Without your little yeah. white circle, which outlines where the circle is on the on the lunar landscape in Surveyor Crater, there's no way you would have ever noticed that as unusual. No way. In the photo, indeed, it is difficult. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I only noticed it because I knew the position well, you know of the exactly, horizon. Exactly. Knew, yeah, you know where it was. Yeah, and uh, here, for, for listeners here in the image, you see the, the shadow of the central object, it's much longer than the shadow of all the other objects around it, and that is the central stone of the circle. And uh, that, that was the final uh, decision factor, but uh, the location was the, providing the, the evidence and where it was located. 
on the horizon, the horizon location in degrees. And about the quality, it's interesting. Uh, the first 15 matches from Surveyor were taken in low quality, 200 lines per image, so TV lines per image. That is similar to a VHS, old VHS tape recording quality. And then after 50 images, after a few days, was it even, they switched to the high resolution mode of 600 lines. That is a big improvement, three well, times it's, better. It's a factor of three improvement, yeah. Yeah, that will be much better. And uh, the image, here's the item two image, which we look at, is uh, a wide angle image. And they had a second uh, objective at the camera, a second lens. They later switched to the narrow angle telephoto lens. I know it, it was a zoom lens, actually, yeah. but they all only operated the zoom lens at wide angle and uh, tailor at uh, narrow angle at two uh, settings, the widest and the narrowest. And then they switched to the narrow view after maybe a few hours or days. And that was then four to five times higher resolution by just the lens. So we have four times uh, zoom magnification with the lens. Later, we have the three times higher resolution. So we have we would have uh, 12 times higher resolution of later images if they exist. But I have not found any yet. Didn't you discover there's a current project uh, uh, by one engineer who actually probably is in his 90s, who's working as part of a citizen scientist uh, digitization project to convert the uh, analog data from uh, surveyor uh, into digital data for display. And aren't they on track to have that project completed, I think, by early next year? Yes, uh, that is uh, Justin Renelson, Renelson, Justin Renelson, who worked at JPL during the landing of Surveyor in 1967. And he uh, worked as a responsible engineer for the TV camera on that very mission. <laughs> and he presented in 2016 at JPL, telling about his experience as engineer and really telling all the technical details about the cameras. He also showed uh, videos uh, assembled from multiple frames from the camera never seen before. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's linked at item one in my items. That was a nice archive work there in his, uh, I guess his son uh, copied it to YouTube. And Justin uh, worked as engineer at JPL back then. He showed uh, his, his personal interest. He was later than the, the elevated dust uh, uh, cloud moving with the sunset terminator shadow on the moon that is also shown in the item one here that he is showing late in the video. And he uh, uh, reported about uh, his work. And he is also part of the group which is digitizing all the surveyor missions from all five uh, successful surveyor landings that are uh, uh, 6,000 images from surveyor three and uh, about the same number of images for all other four landers. And he is working with uh, now an additional student and other uh, retired engineers um, on digitizing all surveyor images. And what I heard is that they plan to release it next spring in the PDS database. Hmm. You know, by the way, that the idea that that bright line on the horizon in the surveyor images, and there's more than just surveyor uh, three imagery, there's surveyor um, seven, there's surveyor one, I don't know about the others, but they all show this brightness, and it's been pretty conclusively ruled out that it is levitating dust. Of course, I have my own model as to what it is. It's the bottoms of the dome seen in front uh, forward scattering. Uh, when the sun is set at the observer site, the cameras at their low light level can photograph the scattering of light from the sun off the glass structures that are above the horizon, and that's what we're seeing. But obviously, I don't think you're willing to go there, so we won't go there. Yeah, what it is, uh, 
Nobody knows exactly. Uh, what most engineers think, I also think that it is uh, related to electrostatic effects of the light on the sunlit surface and creating a charge on the surface, which is opposite to the charge on the on the night well, side. Well, wait, 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 then... Holger. <laughs> NASA sent a whole mission called LADI, which is an acronym, you know, in lunar orbit to photograph these dawn and dust parts of the lunar terminator to see if there was any elevated electrostatic dust. And they found none, zero, nada. So, you know, and you can look at the papers up online. If it's not electrostatic dust by elimination, again, my, my one white crow idea, by elimination, you are driven to the absolutely controversial and very intensely argued idea that there are structures on the moon that no one officially is yet acknowledging that in fact will scatter light into the shadowed region and the surveyor missions were the first and I did not put up my version because I've got an extraordinary surveyor three image showing stunning geometric details in this glass over the horizon lit by the sun and of course in a cloud of amorphous dust you can't possibly have geometry what uh, it, it's strange uh, what, but we need to find out what it is and at what point do we find out or we do a, do we have enough evidence now to make a decision except people simply don't want to go to where the decision would go so they delay and defer and demur and say well we need more data at some point hey, Richard, science uh, was that Ron yeah Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, this is Ron Jordan. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I, I, I do not want to derail what your point you're getting to there. I just wanted to ask both of you. Hi, Holger. Uh, is it not fairly established at this point that there's an awful lot of silicates and glass, for want of a better word, on uh, on the surface of the moon? You know, just as dust, as little spherules, as whatever you want. Well, in terms but, of uh, the analysis of the Apollo samples. And in terms of the few ounces that the Russians, the Soviet Union, brought back by unmanned robots to Moscow, about uh -huh. half the weight of the of the finds, the so-called uh, regolith, the lunar dirt, is mm -hmm. little glass beads and shards and bits of silicon dioxide as glass, and it is explained by the mainstream as the as impact glass, meaning that if you, <clears throat> you know, smash objects into the lunar surface at hypervelocity, tens of miles per second, you create intense little sparks of heat. The heat will fuse elements like silicon and oxygen together and create what's called impact glass. And there are ready examples on some of the samples the astronauts brought back of, you know, rocks that are splashed with molten glass from nearby impacts. So right. it's not the idea that the glass on the surface is not unknown. It's just the idea that what we're seeing is structured glass over the horizon, still lit by sunlight, where the surveyor cameras were in darkness and taking long exposures, looking for the sun's corona. And instead they found the incredible geometry towering miles up in the images that we processed this glass structure around the moon seen from underneath. <clears throat> and until there is a political solution, until some other new mission, either manned or unmanned, lands on the moon, takes imagery, takes data, and says in the scientific community, there is a dome around the moon, nobody is willing to believe it, regardless of the evidence. No, but they are tiny. No, no, go ahead, Holger. I was leading into pass it back to you anyway. I, I agree that they are tiny domes in the form of glass spherules because they are not only glass beads, <laughs> so none of these, but they are uh, spherules. Oh, come are, on, Holger. You know, that's, they, they that's, are, it's a fact because they, they lower the density of the surface soil. See, I, guess I, I guess I need, and we're about uh, five minutes from the top of the hour, I guess I need to ask the question, an epistemological question, epistemology, you know, the science of how do we know what we know. 
How do we know what's on the moon, Holger, apart from the official NASA and other state space imaging systems that have been there? What's our criteria for scientific truth as opposed to political truth? We could measure it from Earth with radar, but radar is, is strange. Radar on the moon that is, is a problem, apparently, which caused many landing failures in the past, even today, because uh, it's, uh, the moon is uh, difficult to, to see in radar even, because it has a low, um, electric di uh, a low dielectricity. And it's interesting that it's related to the you think that a dielectric coefficient is necessary for radar to work? Uh, yes, it, it is related to radar reflection, and it has oh. a dielectric coefficient of three only, this, because it's so dry and has these spherules. It's three only that is similar to to a good uh, insulator in material and capacitors. But if you have and enough example, power, if you have enough power, it doesn't matter how inefficient the surface is reflecting radar of a particular wavelength yes. or frequency, it will produce an echo and the sensor systems are so sensitive that even if it's only a dielectric of three, it will easily record you know, that echo. The problem is if you have a dome, you have <clears throat> multiple echoes, multiple from different layers, which will confuse the computer, which is only programmed to imagine a reflection from the lunar surface and that's why all these subsequent missions in my model have failed, because they have failed to account for the multiple reflections of their landing radar systems. The um, Indians succeeded because whether they copied us or not, they built in different models into the computer to account for different echoes. And they were able to safely navigate the spurious signals and land near the South Pole of the moon. At, by the way, 19.5 degrees from the South Pole. Hey, Richard, did not they document during the uh, Chandrayaan-3 uh, landing uh, that they had got, they had had to account for uh, multiple and somewhat mm -hmm. serious signal <clears throat> feedback? Yeah, I yep. thought so. Yep. Just look it up. They, so they, Google, Google is your they, friend. They, <laughs> yeah, they documented it. They just didn't, uh, they just said, well... That happened. Well, they well exactly. They they said that they didn't say why that happened, but the computer algorithms were flexible enough, you know, AI, that they were able mm -hmm. to work around what they did not expect because they, their farthest out models, given their previous catastrophe of Chandrayaan two's lander, they allowed mm -hmm. for the unthinkable, and they were able to successfully land on the moon an unmanned spacecraft. Hey, we are literally at the top of the hour. So let us defer further conversation. My guest this morning so far, Holger Eisenberg and uh, Ron Gerbron. We have many other members of our panel who will be breaking in, commenting, having their own ideas. And some of them who will be joining us shortly will have their own independent analysis of the lunar Stonehenge data. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard T. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And 
you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm -hmm.